my name is Rick Morris. Uh, my wife and I have been coming to LifePoint Delaware for the last six years. I'm one of the Bible teachers here. I've been asked to speak a few times, got that privilege this morning, which I very much appreciate. We are talking about the candle that represents peace this morning. We're going to get there. Primarily, we're going to focus on the source that provides the greatest peace there is. By way of reminder, this four-week series is all based out of Colossians 1. Colossians is actually a letter to the church in Colossae that was started by a guy named Epaphras. He was an associate of the Apostle Paul. And they were a church much like we are. They were people who'd placed their faith in Christ. They wanted to live a life that was pleasing to God. But they're confused at this point because some false teachers have evidently come in and started bringing in different ideas and presenting a different picture of Christ and a different pictures of what a life that's pleasing to God actually looks like. They were saying that Christ wasn't enough. They were saying that true spirituality required more. Things like secret spiritual knowledge, things like adding things that you do, depriving yourself of certain things, adding rules on uh, things that are morally neutral, like what you eat, what you do. And the Colossians were being persuaded to mix and match the things that they'd learned about Christ with some of these other views. And so Paul has to remind them that salvation and spiritual life comes through Jesus Christ. But the question now is, which Jesus Christ? Because this view that they have given is so different than the one that they had learned. The false teachers are presenting a new picture, that a Christ who's been depreciated, a Christ who is lowered in status, a Christ who is insufficient. Spirituality required more than Christ alone. And so Paul has to answer the question, and it's the question that we're going to be focused on here this morning. Who is Jesus Christ? That question has been around for over 2,000 years. It was around when Christ walked the earth. One day he asked his disciples, who do the people say I am? And they said, well, the answers are mixed. Some people think you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some people think you're a prophet like Jeremiah or Elijah. So they didn't agree. And we don't agree today either. That question is still being debated. I did some research preparing for this. I looked for some surveys that are representative samples of uh, adults across the U.S. that asked people to comment on various statements and questions about Christ and his identity. And there were some interesting responses there. It's pretty divided. For example, over half the people don't believe that Jesus existed prior to being born on the first Christmas. So over half the people think that he wasn't eternal. He started, his life started on that Christmas evening. Over half the people believe when he lived on earth, Jesus Christ was human and committed sins like everybody else. And I'm guessing most of them think, you know, he probably committed less sins than the rest of us, but in the end, he's just a sinner like the rest of us. Over half the people answered the survey questions that way. 53% of the people said that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 
And what was amazing to me was when I started to look at the details in that survey, the subset of the respondents who identified themselves as evangelicals, which typically means Bible-believing Christians, of those people, 43% of them agreed with that statement as well. Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Who is Jesus Christ is the most important question anyone can ever ask because it has huge implications, not just on this life, but on the next. And it's an appropriate question to ask when Christmas is eight days away. Who is that person in the manger? And Paul is going to answer that question this morning with one of the most definitive passages on Christ's identity in all of Scripture. I will warn you, we are drinking from a fire hose. It's only six verses. Every phrase is so packed, we could spend the whole day on each one. So we're going to be flying pretty fast and pretty high, but we'll do our best. We're looking at Colossians 15 to 20. We're going to read the first half of that right now. So Paul says this. He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and all things hold together. You might have noticed one verse that came, or one word that came up over and over in that passage. In the, in the six verses that we're going to read, the word all, the Greek word pas, comes up eight times. All things, all creation, everything. He's stressing, stressing that Christ is supreme over all. That's his opening statement. And then he starts giving evidence for that. And here's where the fire hose opens up. Exhibit A, he says, is Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Not just a reflection like in a dim mirror, but God's ultimate revelation. The Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 18, says that no one has seen God at any time. Paul agrees with that in 1 Timothy 6. God dwells in unapproachable light that no man has seen or can see. We can't come into the presence of God and survive. No one's ever seen him. So how do we know what he's like? And many people say, you can't know. When people talk about God, it's just, they're just making it up. They're using their own mind and reasoning out to what they think he might be like. But the authors of Scripture disagree with that. They say it's just the opposite. It's not us musing up towards God. It's God reaching down to us and telling us. They say we can know about God because God has spoken. And he's spoken a lot. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. This is how it starts. Long ago, at many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago means like in Old Testament times, God spoke through spokespersons the prophets, we saw one of those in Daniel recently. He would speak to these people and then they would make what God said known to the, to the population. And he would tell them lots of things, what he's like, what he desires. He would give short and long-term predictions of what was going to happen. But all of that Old Testament revelation was progressive. 
It was layer upon layer of truth, but it was like a jigsaw puzzle. It was never the full picture until verse 2. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, who he appointed as heir of all things and through whom he created the world. In these last days, in New Testament times, he's saying he spoke through Christ. He completed the partial revelation with his full revelation, and that's how he could say in verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus was what the rest of those prophecies were pointing to. And the rest of the New Testament agrees. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, a lot of you know what the first verse is. In the beginning was the Word. That term meant significant spiritual things to both Jews and Gentiles alike. And there was something special about that Word. It says, the Word was with God, so in God's presence, but distinct from God the Father. And the Word was God in the fullest sense. He's obviously talking about a couple members of the Trinity, and in 14, he says who the Word is. Verse 14, Jesus was that Word. The Word became flesh, he says, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And now the rest of that verse 18 that I mentioned before that starts out, no one has seen God at any time, this is how it ends. But the only begotten of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The Word explains God. Jesus reveals God because he is God. And that is why the author of Hebrews can say he's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. It's why Christ can say, he who has seen me has seen the Father, because he's God. Listen, it's in Colossians, it's in John, it's in Hebrews. The most maddening part of preparing for this this morning is how many passages I had to leave out because it's all over the place. So let me tell you, if God says something to you once, you ought to listen. If he says something to you twice, you should listen well. And if he says something to you in Colossians, in Hebrews, in John, through the prophets, throughout Scripture, over and over again, you might want to take some notes because it's really important. And that's what he's saying here. The scriptures aren't just making passive observations about Jesus. They're shouting them. It's important to pay attention. They're saying this. All we can know and understand of God is seen in Christ. He is God's supreme revelation. And that's why we can look at exhibit B. He's the image of the invisible God and he's the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that he didn't exist prior to being born in the manger. That term primarily refers to, refers to position or rank. It means rightful heir or ruler, which is why in Psalm 89, when God is speaking of King David, he says, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. He's not saying, I'm going to make him the firstborn in his family. He wasn't even close. He was number eight. He means what he says. 
I will make him the highest of all kings. It means that Jesus is the rightful ruler. Hebrews said the heir of all things and therefore the owner of all creation. And he's also the owner of creation, not because, just because he's the heir, but because he's the maker of creation. Look back at verse 16 in Colossians 1. In him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, in the spiritual realm and the physical realm, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, which is why Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 can say Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. It's why John can say in chapter 1, verse 3, all things came to being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And Paul goes on. He's before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Before all things. In order to make it, he had to exist before it. And he did. That's why Christ said in John 17, the Father loved me, before the earth existed. Those who said Jesus didn't exist prior to being born that first Christian, er, Christmas were incorrect. He existed before creation. He spoke it into being. And all creation is his heritage. And he's not done. He's not just the heir, the ruler, the maker, the owner. He's also the sustainer of all creation. Colossians says, in him all things hold together. Hebrews said, he upholds all things by the word of his power. It's, he's the one that holds the universe together. It's not over until he says it's over. I want to show you a picture in a moment. It's one thing to talk about the creation. It's another thing to look at it. You learn something about someone by looking at what they create. I had a, an amateur interest in astronomy when I was younger, very amateur. I'm just into it for the thrill. I'm overwhelmed by what God's created. One of the, one of the places I most like to be on earth is a place we go wherever we, whenever we can in Canada. It's up in one of the few dark sky uh, places remaining uh, in this part of the world. It's a place where there are, we're basically surrounded for the most part by water. So there's no city lights to, uh, to dim out the sky. And when you walk out on the deck at night on a, on a clear night with no moon, it is astounding. I mean, you see so many stars. The Milky Way is just a path of light across the sky. There, it, it looks like milk. They call it Milky Way for a reason. So many that you have to work to try to figure out sometimes where the Big Dipper is because there's so many stars around it. It's huge. Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. That's six trillion miles a year. That's six with 12 zeros after it. That's one light year. The Milky Way, Milky Way galaxy, the one that our solar system is in, is 90,000 light years in diameter. It has billions of stars. But it's just one galaxy. 
back in 1995. I, I'm going to show a picture that was taken by, and not the newer telescope, the old workhorse, Hubble. It's been, in, it's, it's been in the sky for decades. And they decided at one point in December of 1995 to take a core sample of the sky near the handle of the Big Dipper, a dark spot in the sky that's not, that wasn't near other stars so there wouldn't be other light, a place that looked like there was relatively nothing there. And they focused on a piece of sky so small it was about the size of a grain of salt held at arm's length. And they took a 100-hour exposure of that place over the course of 10 days. And this is what they saw, if you can put that slide up. Those are not stars. Those are galaxies. Galaxies like ours, like the Milky Way, some of them much larger than ours. They found thousands of them in that dark spot that looked uninhabited that they didn't know previously were there. Of all shapes and, and colors, and that small field is considered representative of a typical distribution of galaxies in space. It suggests that the universe contains billions of them. That is that just staggers me. It never ceases to amaze me. And it's all in motion, like a big clock, and it's expanding. It is amazing. In the words of an early astronomer, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. That astronomer was King David. That's from Psalm chapter 19. Only an all-powerful creator is a su sufficient cause to bring this into being. And Jesus is that cause. And Paul is still not done. He's supreme not just over that first creation. He's also supreme over the new creation. And that's where we'll look at the rest of this passage that we're going to read this morning. Verse 18. He's the head of the body. The church. He's the head of his church. He's the source of the church's life. The Colossians needed to look nowhere else to supplement him. He's the beginning, it says, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He was the first to rise from the dead with a resurrection body that would never die again, but he wasn't only the first one to experience it. He's also the beginning and the founder of a new creation. Verse 19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, that means all the fullness of deity, to dwell in him. And through him, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This speaks of the climax of the gospel story. The one whose birth we're celebrating this week. Who he is and what he did. Paul summarizes who he is and what he did so well in one other passage. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. This is what he did. He tells us in verse 5 to have the same attitude in us that, that was in Christ. Verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, set aside some of his divine attributes, and taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness 
of men. I, I want to stop for a minute. I'm guessing that most people in this room, a lot of you have heard that passage before. Do you ever think about the implications of that in light of the things that we've been talking about this morning? To be heir, owner, ruler, sustainer of all. To be omnipotent, all-powerful, able to speak not just galaxies, a universe into existence. To be omniscient, to know everything, not just what was and what is, but also what will be and even what might have been. To, to know all things actual or possible at once. To be omnipresent, to transcend space and time, to be able to be everywhere at once, not bound by those things. And then to willingly lay aside those attributes. All of that wisdom, all of that power, all of that knowledge, all of that freedom, lay it aside to empty yourself and come be born as a baby in a feeding trough. To grow and bleed as we do, to live as humans as we do in every way except without sin. And then to live as a servant in submission to the ones that you've created and the one whose lives you sustain. Even when you're being rejected by them, accused by them, convicted by them, condemned by them, betrayed by them, abandoned by them, crucified by them. Would you do that? Would you do that for an enemy? Would you do that for the one who was nailing your hands and feet to a cross? But that's what he did. And that's where Paul goes in the next verse. Being found as appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did that because that's what it took to live a life without sin and then offer his life on the cross to pay for the sins of others. The 52% in that survey who said that Jesus lived on earth and committed sins like other people were wrong. If he had done that, he couldn't pay for the sins of someone else. He would have his own sins to pay for. Only a person who was without sin could do this. The 53% in that survey that said Jesus is a man only and not God were wrong. Even a perfect human, if there was such a thing, could only die in the place of someone else, a life for a life. This is something that only someone who was God could do. And that's why Paul emphasizes again, not just in chapter 1, but also powerfully with this verse in chapter 2 of Colossians. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Here's the point. I want to make this as emphatically as I can make it. Only God could do this. Only God could do this. Pay for all sins, once for all, for all time. And Jesus is God. And that was his mission, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, which brings us to the final statement of Christ's identity. Jesus is supreme heir, owner, maker, sustainer, and reconciler 
of all things, reconciler of all things. And this is huge. God is reconciling all things to himself through the blood of his cross, making everything new, including those who place their faith in him. The scripture is very clear from start to finish. We have got a major problem. Our relationship with God is broken. Isaiah 59, chapter 2 says it may be best. Our sins have caused a separation between us and God and caused him to hide his face from us so that he no longer hears. It's like there's a giant wall between us and God that we cannot penetrate because of our sin. But Jesus has broken that barrier to reconcile. To reconcile means to restore. It means to restore a relationship between two estranged parties, not to negotiate a Cold War relationship with someone. So you basically don't like each other, but you agree to just coexist. He's, it means the barrier that divided two people has been removed. They've been brought back together. The relationship is restored, not just legislated tolerance, but restored intimacy and Christ did that through the blood of his cross, and that's what that candle stands for. That is where our peace comes from. Christ reconciled us by making peace with God possible. His death and resurrection are the most decisive events in all of history. The most important thing that ever happened is when he came to earth, lived a life without sin, died as a substitute for our sins and raised from the dead. His death paid for our sins. His resurrection from the dead confirmed that his sacrifice was accepted and also provided assurance that those who accept his sacrifice will one day follow. And that's why Peter says in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else and no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Only Christ could do this. And that's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. He's the only way. So we'll, we started here, we'll end here. The most important question anyone can ever ask is who is Jesus Christ? After Christ asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? He turned to the disciples and said, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And he was right. Who do you say he is? If you're a seeker, but not yet a follower of Christ, I want you to know that you are welcome. This question is so important. If any question was worth looking into and reaching an informed decision on, this is it. There is substantial evidence to verify that that claim is correct, that what is said about Christ in Scripture is true. I have been studying this for 50 years, and the more I learn, the more I am convinced that everything that Paul said here is true. But it's a decision that every person here needs to make for themselves. 
One observation I would make if it could help. The popular view that Jesus was just a good man and a teacher or a teacher and that's all is not rational. If he was only a good person and that's all, he couldn't have done the things he did, the miracles he did, not the least of which being to rise from the dead. Many of those miracles done before a multitude of eyewitnesses. A good person and that's all would not have said the things that he said, that he's eternal, divine, that has the authority to forgive sins, that he's the only way to heaven. There's really only a few rational alternatives to consider. Either his claims are false, in which case he, uh, he might be delusional. He thought he was God, but he wasn't. Or he's a liar. He knew he was God, or was not God, but he insisted he was anyway. And that would be as evil as it is cruel to give people false hope that you're the only way for, to heaven when you know that you're not. They would be evil or demented claims unless they are true. And that is the only other rational alternative. So if you have questions and an open heart, take them to God. He's big. He's not afraid of your questions. But if your questions are answered, but you're hesitating, the best way to know who Jesus Christ is is to meet him personally. And he offers that. The question isn't, is God willing to be reconciled to me? The cross proves that he is. He died to make that possible. What more does he have to do to prove his love? The real question is, do you want to be reconciled to him? He's knocking at the door of your heart. But even though he's omnipotent, he is not going to kick it down. You have to open it. The next move is yours. Actually, there'll be an opportunity to do that here in a moment if that's something you'd like to do this morning. I want to say one final thing to those of us who have placed their faith in Christ. It, it, just, just something to think about. Many of us have known these truths that we just talked about for years. We've heard them so many times that, frankly, it's hard to pay attention. But though we know them, it's possible that they don't impact our lives as much as they should. And for some, what those candles represent, peace and hope and joy, if we're honest, aren't terms that we would use to describe our experience. And there could be multiple reasons for that, but one reason could be not allowing those truths to travel that immensely long 12-inch distance from the head to the heart. To move from just being head knowledge, where I have facts and figures about Christ, I can recite his bio. Frankly, the devil can do that too, the scripture says. To move from that to heart knowledge, where we actually believe it, and it affects our thoughts and our actions and the way we live our lives. We also need to ask ourselves, who is Jesus Christ? Which Jesus do we believe in? Do we believe in the pocket-sized Jesus that the false teachers were talking about? 
the diminished version of Christ, the one you need to supplement with your own actions. Or maybe you might consult when things get rough, but you will only follow him at your own discretion or the Jesus who's supreme over all. When Paul says later in Colossians to the church, it's the Lord Jesus that you serve. He's talking about the latter. He's talking about the Jesus who is God, the Jesus who's described here. If Christ is divine, if he is supreme, it would be worthwhile to think through the implications of that this Christmas. We could not be in better hands, and we will find all that we need in him. So, when God asks rhetorically in Genesis, is anything too difficult for the Lord? The answer is no. When Paul asks in Romans 8, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no. And the psalmist notes, when the earth totters, it is God who holds its pillars firm. And if he can sustain the universe, he can sustain us as well. And that is where our peace comes from. Let's pray. If you are a seeker of Christ, you don't know him, but you've decided that you would like to this morning, he is not interested in your eloquence. He's interested in your heart. So you could pray a prayer if you would like to, along with me, in your own words, something that expresses this. God, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he came to earth to die for me, to forgive my sins. And I would like that sacrifice to apply to me. I ask to be forgiven. I ask for Christ's death to cover my sins. I ask to have my relationship with you restored. And I'm asking you to come into my life and be my Lord. If you pray that, he will always say yes. Lord, I, I, I just want to say for those who've done that, that you will make yourself real to them. For those who have questions, that you will answer them like you always do. If someone seeks you with an open heart, you say they will always find you. And oh, Lord, for those of us who know you, why do we fear? Why do we act like you don't exist when you are who you are? When you're all those things, maker, owner, sustainer, ruler, reconciler. So thank you. Thank you for sending your son to be born in a feeding trough and die on a cross for loving us that much. Lord, may we live as if we believe that's true. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.